Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, for over 20 years, online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, popular culture professor Garen Roberts, who was awarded the Muncie in 2013, examines 100 years with the author of Psycho, Robert Bloch. The talk was recorded on July 28th. 2017, at Pulp Fest 2017, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Thank you for being here. Um, I'm going to talk about a subject that some of you know at least as well as I do, a person. Some of you knew through the years. And so we're all, in many ways, fortunate and blessed to have stories about Robert Block. Before we start, though, just a couple of uh, really three quick acknowledgments. One, thank you to the Pulp Fest people. They're dear people, and for you new people, we're like vampires. We're going to grab onto you and hang on to you. Um, but they really are great. We're professional here with some really nice original research, excluding me. Um, but we're very approachable. We're friendly people. Okay, you always remember that. And it's me getting old and this kind of stuff and modeling and sentimental. We love the pulps. We love the stories. But as I get older and more theological and philosophy and all that kind of stuff, it's the people we like. We, we're good friends. We like that. Yeah, I'm going to find that copy of Weird Tales tomorrow I want, but I'm going to talk to about 30 guys before I get there, guys and gals. So it's, it's a big deal. Second of my three quick preludes here. Uh, the farmer guys, I love you guys. You are you're, you're tops. And um, like the topic of block, we could go on for days. Uh, Phil Farmer, I've got some great Phil Farmer stories. And what, if I was to very opinionatedly, and you're going to know that I have opinions tonight again, say about Phil and about Bob Block and some of these guys, great writers. I mean, absolute talented wits. But after a while, I almost don't care because they were great people. They were really nice people. And you'll see tonight at the end of my presentation what Bob sent me at the end of his life. And two weeks ago when I was putting this thing together and Chuck was being so patient with me, there were tears 23 years later after remembering about Bob's death and how that all happened. I was in my office basement, Weird Tales, Arkham House, all around me, and the tears were starting to, I'm an old guy, you'll forgive me. The farmer people are great, and I'd like to mention two other guys quickly, and I'm going to be absent by missing other people. Two of my good friends aren't here this year because they've gone to the next life, and that's Bob Flowers Sr. I love that guy. And Art Hackthorne. And uh, think about him a little bit when you're in the halls of the, the dealer room. A lot of good people through the years I've gotten to know here, and many of them have gone to their reward, but... Okay, I want to divide this in three parts. I want to talk about Bob Block very quickly. He published for 60 years, which means that we could spend days just like Philip Jose Farmer. We're not going to do that. As much as I'd love to obsess over the Margaret Brundage and Gloria Stoll Karn, covers illustrating his stories from weird tales to detective novels and all this kind of stuff, we're going to go quick on that kind of thing. I want to spend the next third talking about the letters that, some of the letters that Mr. Block sent me at the end of his life. That was really quite something. And then finally, in the last third, 
I want some of you to talk because I know that you know Robert Block's stories and, and your, your love for him is, is as good or better than mine. You know these kinds of things. Okay, let's look at a few pictures here, all right? If I can handle the technology, it will be great. And you'll see at the very last slide that none of this would have happened without my two daughters who grew up at PulpCon, uh, Lauren and Morgan. They're at, they're at home and they're taking care of my aging parents who, need, who literally need daily attention. So, there he is, early years. I'm going to tell you all kinds of stuff as we go here quickly. Second story sold to Weird Tales, first published, Feast in the Abbey. Great story with You'll read about it in the Pulpster. It's a wonderful story, Margaret Brundage cover, January 35. Not his first sale to Weird Tales. It was his second, but it was his first publication, and he had published before this in Marvel Tales and a couple of other magazines. This actually, from May 35, featured one of the crappiest covers. I told you I'm going to be opinionated in the history of Weird Tales. What is this? I love Craig Kennedy, but what the hell is this? Okay. That's not Margaret Brundage. There's no good monsters. There's no Otis Elbert Klein. What is this? Anyway, that's the first story in there. It's the secret of the tomb that Block had sold to Weird Tales. And if you want a copy, you can buy one from John Gunnison. I saw it behind his. Okay, Jack Williamson, another friend of PulpCon. Okay, so he appears in all these things. He's on the cover in most of the cases. We're going to go fast. This is a wonderful story. Very, very Lovecraftian in tone. Notebook found in the haunted house. And as Michael said, he published somewhere between 67 and 69 stories in Weird Tales alone. He published hundreds, if not thousands, of stories. Okay? Good stuff. So we'll look at that just quickly. You remember this stuff? He's in all these volumes and a lot more. That's a great, each of these are landmark or type of issues. Here they are, we're going fast. 1925, um, I was really happy to see in the pulp store, I go off on tangents, but I'll come back, that nice piece on Mary Elizabeth Councilman, who I have just adored for years, and not just for the three Mark Pennies, but for all of her writing. It's very good. Um, anyway, this is the 25th anniversary, and you probably know the story behind this. They asked the readers what was their all-time favorite story that had ever appeared in the first 25 years of Weird Tales. It was Councilman's filler story, The Three Mark Pennies from 1934. See, I get off the topic. There we go, opener of the way. Interior pictures by some very famous illustrators. We won't obsess over those, but they are wonderful. Okay, uh, another gentleman besides John and his unfortunate, and I say this in the most departed way, John from Oklahoma and the loss of his wife. Another gentleman who's not here today besides Anthony Tolan and John Woolley is Rick Lay. And uh, I love Rick. Oh, God, he's a great conversationalist, a wonderful guy. And he sent me an email, and I knew this, but it was still neat that he mentioned it. Because, I'll show you later, um, Robert Block and Henry Kuttner did three stories together for Weird Tales. They wrote them together, and it's wonderful. Cheaters was, is one of his... Wonderful stories. I love this issue. I should, I'd be ashamed to tell you how many copies of it I have. Uh, it was made into an excellent Boris Karloff thriller television program. If you've ever seen that series, an hour-long program. It traces, of course, as many of you know, if you haven't read this story, you've got to read it. it traces the story of, of a pair of glasses. And it allows people to see 
different things that aren't so very, very nice. Interesting parallel would come uh, right about this time in a, a novel called The Scarf, which had all kinds of different incarnations. We're going to go fast. Um, there's one of those Robert Kuttner collaborations. That's actually a very good story. Martin Grahams, I don't know if Martin's here today or not, but Martin, of course, is one of our world's best authorities on old-time radio. And along with Carl Shadow and, and Ed Hulse and a couple other people, they've tried very, very hard to find these, these particular radio episodes. As far as we know, they don't exist. It's sort of like the silent film, the Lon Chaney film, London After Midnight. It's like, oh my God, could we please just have these? But no, it may never be. Um, but Robert Block's stories were adapted for radio. His first book, the Arkham House book, 1945. There's a few copies of that around the room, you'll see. Pleasant Dreams, his 10th book. There's a back blur, we'll let that go. And then our good friends at Fredegar and Bremen, I don't think Dwayne's here uh, this weekend, uh, collected both of those Arkham Houses in this really wonderful book, The Early Fears. I wanted to talk a little bit about something a lot of people don't know about. Robert Block wrote under a number of pseudonyms. Those stories, uh, are actually quite good. Uh, his most famous pseudonym was probably Tarleton Fisk, although he wrote under others, um, including one at the top there. Nathan Hinden, Death is an Elephant, is actually a Robert Block story. Many of these are collected. He wrote under pseudonym in, in Strange Stories. We, if we know pulp history, we know the strategies of house names and pseudonyms. He did this um, for marketing reasons, and uh, so sometimes he'd have a couple of stories in one volume of strange stories or weird tales or whatever. Um, these were collected in the Arkham House book published posthumously, meaning after his, his death. A wonderful book of, of a lot of stuff he did under pseudonym or lesser known weird tales. There's a few copies of that around the room. I know Greg has one at his booth. Block wrote other things besides horror fiction and science fiction and he wrote for multimedia. Okay, um, he wrote some wonderful science fiction. We'll go through that fast. Really good stuff. As you can guess, and, and it doesn't really even need me to say, um, pretty biased about the guy. I, I really like liked this stuff for decades. This is the first appearance in here. It's not on the cover, but the first Damon Runyon-esque type of stories, a series of, that he did for the course of about three years in the mid-40s, his Lefty Feep series. And um, we're going to get those back in print. I'm, I'm bound and determined to do that. But the first one, Time Wounds All Heals, is in this particular volume. Uh, Block was said to not really care too much about the Lefty Feep, but later in his life, he kind of warmed up to them and thought, hey, they're pretty neat, and he wrote another one just before he passed. These are fantastic adventures, the first three that had um, Lefty Feep stories. This is a non-Lefty Feep story, and uh, Block sometimes used pseudonyms in a fantastic adventure because he would have a couple stories in there. This is a, a, almost a novella or a short novel, The Dead Don't Die. That's not a Lefty Feep story. Ed Carter's cover for the Unknown Worlds uh, series, Unknown and Unknown Worlds. Uh, Block contributed to that, and in this particular issue, he has the story The Cloak. Dragons and Nightmares collected a couple of uh, fantasy pulp stories. 
Detective Tails, you see his name just in small lettering down there, block. And you're going to see more of this when David Saunders starts talking tomorrow night. Now, there's, a, there's a good guy. You know? And this one is neat because here's Block writing a pretty substantial Western. Today, the very politically incorrect story called The Chinaman's Chance. He didn't make the cover, but it's a, it's a big, long story in this mammoth Western. Wrote for Super Science. He wrote for the Digest. Sometimes the vast majority of the content in any particular digest. And we remember this and the artist and the imaginative tales, right? Remember this particular story, the big binge though, because we're going to see it again in another format. He wrote for the saint, the kidnapper. My wife will stop me if I get too ornery. I love Stephen King. I really do. I love his work, particularly his early stuff. He's great. But he was not always nice to Robert Block. He stole several ideas from him. And one of them was, if you read the really crappy King novel, and I mean it sucks, Blaze, one of, he unearthed this thing, one of his first. It's an absolutely crappy direct ripoff of The Kidnapper, which is a really, really good story. This guy, without wrecking the story, kidnaps a little girl and everything goes wrong and it turns out almost like psycho where in a perverse strange sort of way you're actually feeling sorry for the kidnapper and cheering for him that he's going to survive it. You got to read the kidnapper if you haven't read it. I'm not kidding you. It is good. The Will to Kill. Remember the big binge with the nice cool? I think that's a Macaulay cover, wasn't it? I'm a little tired tonight so my brain isn't working as, and as I already said, I'm old. Uh, this is the paperback uh, version of the Big Binge. This is Robert Block uh, as he's headed to Hollywood for, for Psycho. He was born and raised in Chicago. He lived in Wisconsin for a while. And then with, you can read all about that in the Pulster. There it is. He was in Rogue. He was close friends with Harlan Ellison. There he is. Gentle, kind man, blood runs cold. American Gothic, I think the subject of this story is appearing in a movie this summer or later this next year. Uh, have any of you read the very wonderful Eric Larson book, The Devil in the White City? Story of the 1893, well actually, you know, it was a year late. So it was supposed to be the 400th celebration, the Columbia's, Columbian Exhibition in South Side of Chicago, The White City for the 400th anniversary of Columbus arriving, and they were a year late, so it was 1893 as opposed to 1892. And The Devil in the White City talks about all the bad things that happened along the way, the guys that died from electric shock trying to build the city and, and the carnival, the world's carnival. All the problems with elevators, introduction of Cracker Jack, and it's a fantastic novel, a real nice history. You gotta read Eric Larson if you've never read him. He's done some beautiful books. Anyway, one of the themes in this is, of course, the serial killer. And the particular serial killer you can read about in that story. They're making a movie out of him. Eh, who knows how good that's going to be. Uh, and he was quite nefarious, insidious, or whatever word you want. But here, back in the, I think this is about 73, Bob does the original story of, of the real-life serial killer from the Columbian Exposition, who set up the pharmacy on the south side of town and then started to kill people to render their bodies for medical. You know, that was a big business back then. Did you, you knew that, right? All you gotta do is watch the 1945 Val Luton movie with Boris Karloff, right? The Body Snatcher? Yeah, it was a big business. And in Chicago, it was a big deal. And so people disappeared because they needed medical cadavers and 
this guy, a serial killer, created his own cadavers and sold them and rendered them in his anyway. Strange eons, a Lovecraft thing, a couple of mysterious press books, King of Terrors, Out of the Mouths of Graves, collectible volumes, very neat. Best of Block, only done in paperback in the United States, never done in hardcover. Night of the Ripper, very readable story. I read that a couple of years ago. I'd never read it. Fear and Trembling. And then some later reprints of things of some of his lost stuff. This was the first paperback reprinting of it. It was supposed to be a three-volume set of Lefty Feep stories. They never got past volume one, so we'll remedy that situation. Robert Block. Okay, this is a little different because when this novel first came out, he wrote under the Collier Young pseudonym. The Jekyll Legacy with his dear friend, uh, the Cleveland librarian and, and tremendous lady and tremendous author. And then the rare reboots of Weird Tales, short-lived, very rare, you know, things. Special issues in later years by the 90s of block stories. Uh, this, this one always kind of ticked me off a little bit. They did three volumes, okay? Paperback reprints of the Underwood Miller hardcovers. They were beautiful black hardcovers. But in none of those two formats in the three volumes were those by anywhere close to the complete stories of Robert Block. If, if that was 15%, I would have been surprised. Toward the end of his life, he, he uh, introduced and wrote some beautiful... Uh, edited a couple of volumes. He had graphic novel interpretations, and now for a few minutes, let's talk about what I want to talk about. There's so much about Bob we could, could talk about. He and I started writing back and forth, 1983, about 11 years before he died. And I've got stacks of letters, and guess what? They're in my lockbox. They're with my signed dark carnivals, my outsider and others, and. That's how much I think of those, my original Dick Tracy art and all that stuff. So we were, had, wrote me a series of letters. He used to call me Dr. Roberts until I used to get him out of that nonsense. I said, I'm not doctor to you, we're friends. And then he wrote me letters. And there's a lot of them. And I want to read a couple of these to you. I really loved what the, forgive me for being informal, the farmer guys read, and Michael in particular, and, and Wynn's reading and all that. This is. July 26, 1994. Now, he's going to die on September 23rd. They had hoped that he would make it to Christmas. He never did. He says to me, this is later, this is a whole series of correspondence. He'd approached me, he said, I want you to write a book. He said, he said, I want you to have the rights to my stories and to my biography before I'm gone. So he writes me, he says, dear Gary, I'm glad you like the photos. I share your appreciation of what Mrs. Schiff did with no likes in you, mind you. This is certainly the way I'd like to be remembered, even though it's not the way I look or can expect to look in a few weeks. As my ability to swallow decreases, so does my weight, and so will my energy and capacity to function both physically and mentally. He was dying of cancer, and it was in a couple of places. He had six specialists look at him. They said, you're not going to make it. We can fix one. We can't fix both. We're going to make you comfortable, and we hope you make it till Christmas. Um, so he says, so you're a day late with your recent letter or whatever. Last week I had a little piece to do, and what came out was a forewarning of what to expect in the all too near future. I had to start all over again, and my painfully slow rewrite was just that. Obviously the product of 
pain and painkillers. It was then I decided I better not wait, but do a short intro and immediately, unless uh, I might find it impossible to do the job later on. I turned out five or six pages on matters which I would wanted to comment on and mailed said off to you in the same postal exchange your letter arrived. So what you'll let but or may have already received it is not necessarily what you might be expected to have anticipated. <laughs> the preceding sentence, by the way, is a good example of the way my writing is deteriorating unless I really concentrate. But after reading the question and answer sheets for which I'm grateful, I feel better about what I did for the intro since it comes a totally different aspect of the creative impulse and what governs it. I'm pleased you expect to have a manuscript by Christmas, but my chances of seeing and reading it are problematic. Problem, yeah, at best. Nobody is willing to offer an estimate of the time I may have left. All that is known is that chances of surviving chemotherapy and radiation followed by the radical surgery itself are decidedly slim. And even if I survive, it will have no effect on the other cancer, which can only then be treated through the same process. Opting to forgo my inability to swallow will bring death by starvation in the last in less than a month. But as of now, that's the route I'll go, and during the ordeal of the alternative at age 77, without my one of my six specialists willing to precise provide promised positive benefits, it's just too much. Right now, my major incentive for keeping alive is to see that book, so who knows? But here's hoping this finds you copacetic. So he wrote me some beautiful letters. And there was a lot of, a lot of humor, quiet humor, a lot of sadness. He, he often wondered what people would think of him. He said, you know what's going to happen? He said, there will be a generation who will smile when they hear my name, and in two generations I'll be forgotten. He said, that's the lot of, of who I am. So I sent him some typewritten things, and he wrote answers, and I got pages and pages of this stuff. He couldn't talk into the paper for it. He says, you can imagine what happened. I mastered the mechanics of the machine, but couldn't control my own mechanical tendency to ramble with the result that my answer was discursive, and I had to constantly play back to see what I unnecessarily was repeating. All of which made me self-conscious and uncomfortable to the detriment of results. In the end, as you see, I threw up my hands, which I shouldn't have swallowed in the first place, and typed the replies to your questionnaire papers here with enclosed. I think this worked out fairly well for your purposes, and trust you'll agree. Note that even here, I didn't know where to stop. On your final query, I ended up just cutting off what was totally uninteresting and unnecessary explanation. Regarding the photos, how many do you want? I have a half dozen or so, which might amplify the biographical, bibliographical stuff, and so on. All the best, Robert Block. Well, here's the first of many pages of an introduction, and I won't read this all to you, but just to start. I typed the lines without knowing if I will live to see them in print. And then he says, at the time Dr. Darren Roberts first approached me, you know, and then he goes on to say how he first met me, and um, that he wanted me to, based on some of my earlier writing. Some of these pictures you may see in the pulpster, some you may not. 
That's uh, Robert Block, his own painting at the bottom. He's there with, I never cared for Hibbert, he, but he loved her. I thought she was a monster. I'm not a Betty Davis person either. That's Joan Crawford in the middle there, and they were the best of buddies. And the famous uh, Schlockmeister of film, uh, William Castle. Here he is with Susan Oliver. Susan Oliver was, was for lack of, forgive my phrasing here, she was kind of a pretty, pretty girl back in those days, with no disrespect. She'd been in a lot of things in the 50s and 60s. Here he's showing her a script for an Alfred Hitchcock film, or a TV show. And what's ironic is while they didn't work together, both of them would have stints in Gene Roddenberry's uh, Star Trek uh, TV series. Um, Bob wrote three of the very best episodes ever for Star Trek. Anybody know what those were? Oh, you got them all. Cat's Paw, Wolf in the Fold, and What Are Little Girls Made Of? Yeah. So there he is with Susan Oliver. There he is with Ellie, you know, saying she's taming him and domesticating him. There he is with his daughter and her fiance, her husband at the time. And uh, he's giving her a lecture, he says. Can you imagine a Bob Block lecture? <laughs> that, that guy couldn't yell at anybody. And this picture's in Pulster, okay? I can't recommend this book highly enough. This, this book is one of my 10 all-time favorite books, not just autobiography, not just biography. It is an amazing book, and it's not just humbly about Bob, who was actually a very humble guy. It's about the pulp industry and what he shares about his years working for whatever editor you want to talk about from Weird Tales or whoever it was. This, this book, is you can read it multiple times. It's unbelievable. I wanted to pay quick tribute to Randall Larson, a previous Block scholar. As I said, many of you know a lot about Block, and, and I have no unique license on this except uh, dedication and do something good for him before I'm gone in this book form and the manuscripts about this high already. Um, but Randall Larson needs to be acknowledged because he was really the pioneer in Block scholarship. And I don't know if Mr. Williams here uh, tonight or not. He was here. Of course, he's in the dealer room. If you have not read this book, and I say this, I don't get a dime out of this thing. This is the best thing, closest thing that's ever been done to Robert Block since Robert Block. It is, it is, is a great book. It's a really, really good book. It's about the interim years. Maybe you know that Block had to write Cycle 2 and Cycle 3 to protect his rights from the crappy movies, Cycle 2 and Cycle whatever. So he wrote the novels quickly. This is what happens to Norman Bates in the sanitarium. There he is, and he writes down at the bottom. This picture is in your, your pulpster, but it says here he writes, Portrait of an Artist as an Old Man. And that's, that's Bob. He was a guest of honor, as Mike mentioned, 1983. Okay, I want you to talk and tell me about, about Bob. We've got about uh, eh, five minutes, seven, six, seven minutes. Is there anything? Michael, I'm going to hold you to those stories about Bob and Phil Farmer. I think those are just really, really cool. But anybody want me? I know some of you actually met Bob. You knew him and, uh, in person. He said he first, met, he first introduced himself to me in 83 with one of my first books. I think it was that, that kind of amateurish but wonderful collection of Karen's grandpa's books, uh, stories, the Moon Man stories. But Bob Block was a great guy. Let me just say that. And, and I first met him via mail in the 80s. He said, I really like your stuff, he said. And then towards the end, he said, 
but you do something on me, I'll get you all the rights cleared. And so, anyway, that's enough for me. What else? Anybody else have anything you want to say? Or was he ever sorry? He never met H.P. Lovecraft in person. He was uh, apparently very touched when he died. Um, he had had not made at that time. He was he was born. You read this in his autobiography, and it is amazing. I mean, it reads and the humor in there. There's a. I'll come back to your Lovecraft question in a second. There's a picture of him in August Durlip right after they published the opener of the way, the first block collection. And they both got this look of horror on his face. And he said, we just published my first book. And he said, this is, and uh, no, he was, he was, he really liked, and of course, as you know, Lovecraft only dedicated only one time a story to an author, and it was to Robert Block. What's that? It was Lovecraft's last story. Yeah, yeah. Um, he never, he felt bad he had never made the pilgrimage because he lived at that time as, as a younger man in the Chicago, Milwaukee area. His dad had moved, you know, and all this stuff during, during the Depression for work. In some ways it parallels the Grapes of Wrath. And then, then he lived in those places for a while. But he was quite saddened. Uh, and I remember the day he died and I got the letter that, the last letter I got from him came less than a week before he died. And I sat in my office, and I'd had one goddamn hell of a day. I was not happy. It was hot up in Traverse City, Michigan. I loved the town. I was there for 19 years. And I was eating cherries from one of the orchards. And I got my last letter from him, and he said, he said, onecologically yours, this is goodbye. I won't be able to do this again. And he was gone within a week. And I was so, that day, I had tears. I was mad. And I thought, maybe in some small way, that's how he felt when Lovecraft died. Yeah. Yeah, but he admired the master greatly, and um, yeah. Somebody else tell me tell me something about about Mr. Block. He, he was amazing. His stories, his radio stuff, his wow. And you know what? What you hear? Everybody says, oh, he was the horror, suspense, mystery, even Western writer, science fiction writer. What you hear if you listen to Robert Block's stories is you hear a gentle humanity a very, very intelligent man with this incredible humanity about life, very introspective, and um, yeah, good stuff. Yes? If you want, I'll tell you, I met him once at the first Dragon Con in Atlanta, but in the early 80s, and uh, I had gotten a copy of the scar because of the hardback of the first edition. I had gotten it from a Goodwill store mm -hmm. in 1966, and I took it in for an autograph. And uh, I was coming out of the dealer room, and I met him in the hallway. It was just the two of us. And I, I asked him if he autographed the book, and he opened it up. And in the corner, it said 25 cents. <laughs> and he gave me this, this hurt look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you, Gene. There was a young lady in the back who was going to say something, too. Were, were you going to say something? Yes.
Sure. Uh-huh. Right, exactly. And in a loving way, sort of, you know? Yeah. I, I don't want to make, I don't want the gentleman in the front and the other person who got the Mysteries of the Worm book get mugged on the way out of here, but oh my, those are nice collections and a lot of the Lovecraftian pastiches and stuff. Yeah. Anybody else? That's enough from me. Yeah, Michael? I don't have any stories about Bloch, but did I hear you say that he wanted you to have the rights to his works? Not to all of his works, but he, some of the pictures you've seen, he had his attorney clear those in my name. I have the documentation for the book. Okay. And I have, I have this introduction for, that he cleared and wrote for me. It's about seven typewritten pages, and it is gold. It is gold. He talks about life. He sort of reflects about it. Sort of like Bradbury does in Farewell Summer, his sequel to Dandelion Wine. He sort of says goodbye. Yeah, it's beautiful. That's enough for me. Thank yeah, Michelle? Uh, I was driving through a uh, snowstorm in Castor, Wyoming, on the way to some show 10 years ago, and I stumbled across a library sale. The radio said Casper was having a library sale. And I was there on the fourth day which is highly unusual for me because I'm usually there in the fourth minute. Uh-huh. But anyway, I picked up a whole bunch of collectible paperbacks, and one of them was The Kidnappers by Blanc, first edition, nice edition, and it was a quarter Yeah. similar. <laughs> and uh, the librarian, the woman, I guess she was a librarian, she said, why are you buying that author? He wrote Psycho. He must be a terrible writer. Yes. Because uh, he was a lot more than psycho. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that always hurt him that people thought that. Oh, I, I know it did. And, and what was funny about it was that Tom Lesser paid me $80 for that book. Yeah. He's <laughs> got me to get it. It's, <laughs> a, a, Michelle, have you read that story? It's very, very good. That's for you. The Kidnapper, have you read the oh, story? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The baby dies, and this guy is. Anyway, that's enough. Yeah. No, that's. That's a, just the start of the story, just like when Marion Crane gets killed. No, that's a trick. Um, that's, um, yeah, that's just the start of the story when Mary, Mary Crane gets killed in the novel. That's enough for me. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Mary. You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 20 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.com. Net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2017.